three and a half years ago that Jamie last asked me to speak here in Scottsdale Bible Church on Sunday morning. And um, he said he was preaching a sermon on, a series on 1 Peter. So could I take a sermon on 1 Peter? I said, sure. He said, okay, here's your text. 1 Peter 3, 1, wives be subject to your husbands. <laughs> I said, Jamie, uh, can I talk about verse 7 also? Husbands love your wives? Oh, no, no, I'm going to do that the next week. <laughs> Well, this week he's made it easier for me. He's been talking about some great uh, topics, the Bible, the Trinity, and sin, which was a hard topic last week. This week he gave me salvation. Well, who wouldn't want to talk about salvation? That's a great topic. But you know what? I think the topic this morning is the real reason most people come to church. You come to church, maybe somebody asked you, maybe because you're curious, maybe it's habit, tradition, but deep down, most people come to church because they're longing to know God. And this morning, we're talking about what Scottsdale Bible Church teaches, what the Bible teaches about salvation, that is, how you can come to know God personally in a relationship that will go on forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the amazing wisdom of your word and how it guides us into knowing you and the truth that teaches us that we couldn't know any other way unless you reveal it to us. So we ask your help and your guidance this morning. Lord, will you, Holy Spirit, will you empower the words of Scripture to speak to everyone's heart here this morning? Amen. The Bible Church Statement of Faith on Salvation says this, We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures as a representative and substitutionary sacrifice. What does that mean? Well, I want to look first at what happened in the physical realm when Jesus died and then what happened in the invisible spiritual realm. First, what happened in the physical realm? I'm going to read a, just an overview of the narrative as it is in Mark's Gospel. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning, when they crucified him. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. In the first century, in Palestine, in the entire Roman Empire, anybody reading this little sentence in the Gospel of Mark, and they crucified him, anybody reading that would have shuddered because they had seen crucifixions and they knew what a horrible death it was. A prisoner, a criminal who was crucified was essentially forced to inflict upon himself a very slow and painful death by suffocation. 
because as the prisoner's arms were nailed to the outstretched beams of the cross, and, and the Greek word for hand can also mean wrist, and most people think the nails put through the wrist to bear the weight of the body. As the prisoner's arms were nailed to the cross, and he was suspended on the cross, most of the weight of his body was held by his arms, and his chest cavity would expand upward and outward. And after a few minutes, it would become increasingly difficult to breathe because he couldn't exhale to get another breath. And so after a few minutes, he could push himself up with his feet and his legs and pull with his arms and let his chest cavity contract so he could breathe more easily again. But then there'd be incredible pain in his feet and his arms, and eventually he'd fall back down again and breathing would become more difficult. The Roman philosopher Seneca, the younger, in 64 AD, spoke of a crucified man drawing the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony. And then back in 1986, a physician wrote an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association explaining medically what would happen to someone who was crucified. He said adequate exhalation required lifting the body by pushing up on the feet and by flexing the elbows. However, this maneuver would place the entire weight of the body on the tarsals and would produce searing pain. Furthermore, flexion of the elbows would cause rotation of the wrists about the iron nails and cause fiery pain along the damaged median nerves. Muscle cramps and paresthesias of the outstretched and outlift, uplifted arms would add to the discomfort. As a result, each respiratory effort would become agonizing and tiring and lead eventually to asphyxia. In some cases, crucified men would survive for several days in horrible agony. And that's why soldiers would break the deaths of crucified men sometimes to hasten death because once they would break the legs of crucified men because once their legs were broken, then they couldn't push themselves up to get adequate breath anymore, and soon they would die. We read that in John's Gospel, John 19, 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So that was what was happening in the physical world. Jesus was crucified and he died. If you were there at that time, that was what you would have observed. That was what anybody could see. If we could imagine an imaginary reporter for the Jerusalem Daily News, she might have written something like this. A popular Jewish religious leader, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified by Roman soldiers and died today near Jerusalem. A strange darkness fell on the entire area for the last three hours of his life. Local weather experts have offered no explanation. That's what happened in the physical world. But was anything else happening? Was there anything that the reporter couldn't have seen? Oh yes, a lot more. 
And so number two, I want to ask, what happened that day in the invisible spiritual realm? There were momentous events going on in the invisible realm that no Jerusalem Daily News reporter could have reported because in the Bible, God himself tells us as we as, as we are watching what happens, God tells us what was going on in the invisible spiritual realm in God's temple in heaven as he was relating to Jesus, his son on the cross. And here we learn that something profound was happening in the invisible realm, something that changed the course of all history and something that affects our lives even to this day. First, God the Father was placing our sins on Jesus. A long time before Jesus' life, in 700 B.C., the prophet Isaiah had predicted this in an amazing chapter, Isaiah 53. He predicted a lot of the details of Jesus' death. And one verse there says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God was somehow putting our iniquity, our sin on Jesus. In the New Testament, Paul talks about it this way. He says, for our sake, he made him. Now that's he, God the Father, made him, God the Son or Christ, to be sin. The Father made the Son to be sin for us. What does that mean? He was an innocent man. He had never done anything wrong. He had never harmed anyone. And yet God placed the weight of our sins, the guilt of our sins, the liability for punishment for our sins upon Christ. And then once that happened, something even more amazing happened. As Jesus was dying on the cross, God the Father was pouring out his wrath on Jesus. Isaiah also predicted this. He said, yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief in Isaiah 53:10. And we go over to the New Testament, and we find that Paul says this in Romans 3. It talks about Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, that word propitiation, it translates a Greek word, hilasterion, that was commonly understood in the ancient Greek world. Greeks had a lot of different gods, Zeus and other gods that they would worship, and from time to time they would think that one of these gods was angry with them. And what would you do to change the anger of a god to favor, well, you'd offer a sacrifice. And the sacrifice would take the wrath or the anger of that god, and then the god would be happy with you again. And the Greek word that was used to talk about these sacrifices that would bear the wrath of a deity, it was hilasterion. The Greeks were familiar with this. It wasn't an uncommon word. But that's exactly the word, amazingly, that the Apostle Paul uses to talk about Jesus' death. It was a propitiation, a sacrifice that bore the wrath of God and turned it to favor toward us. That same word is used elsewhere. Hebrews 2.17, 1 John 2.2, 1 John 4.10, the New Testament authors understood that Jesus' death was bearing the wrath of God. In fact, Jesus knew when he went to the cross, in addition to the mocking and the scorning and the physical suffering, he knew it was going to happen, that he would have the weight of the sins of the world put on him, and then the wrath of the Father would be poured out on him. Because when he prayed in the garden, he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In the Old Testament, background to that cup is the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah 51, 17, O Jerusalem, you have drunk 
from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. It's a picture taking into himself the entire wrath of God against him. Jesus knew that he was going to face the full wrath of his father against sin. The punishment that our sins deserved would penetrate into the inner depths of his being. What do I mean, bearing the wrath of God? We have a little tiny example of that in our own experience. If we've done something wrong, and then the person we've harmed is angry with us. Maybe when you were a child, you knew you did so, you broke something that was very important to one, of, one or the other, your parents, and the parent was angry with you and you knew you were guilty. Or maybe at work, you made a mistake, a stupid mistake, and cost your company a lot of money. Your boss was just plain mad at you, and you knew you deserved it. Now that's a tiny, tiny, tiny one-thousandth of one percent of what it would be like to face the wrath of an eternal, omnipotent, infinitely holy, infinitely just God. To have that wrath poured out on you for a moment would be just devastating. But Jesus faced it hour after hour after hour, wave after wave of the wrath of God the Father against the sins of the world poured out against him. Paul says in Romans 3, 24 to 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, it's important to understand what Paul's reasoning is. Paul is saying people could look back at hundreds of years of history and they couldn't figure out. Wrong had been done, but God hadn't punished it. Abraham had sinned, he'd been forgiven. Moses had sinned, David had sinned, they'd been forgiven. How could this be? God, why aren't you punishing all the evil that's going on in the world? And then Paul says, when Christ came, God put forth his son as a sacrifice to bear all that wrath for previous sins that God had passed over. And when God put his wrath on Christ, then it was clear to the whole world, ah, there is justice in the world. Sin is going to be punished. Either God will hold the sinner to account or he'll put that punishment on his own son. Now, in the academic world, there are some scholars, mostly liberal scholars, who deny this idea of propitiation. They deny that God poured out his wrath on his son. Oh, this is a horrible idea, they say. Why? because they just want a different God from the God in the Bible. They just want a smiling, loving God who just turns a blind eye and winks and will save everybody no matter what they have done. And my response is to say, I'm sorry, that's a God of your imagination. That's not the God that is portrayed here in the Bible. Even among ordinary Christians today, sometimes I think people might sometimes think, let's get over all this talk about the wrath of God. God can just forgive sins. That's easy for him. He's a God of mercy and love, isn't he? My response to that is to say, I don't think that idea is consistent with the Bible. It cannot explain adequately these verses on propitiation, on Christ's suffering and sacrifice, bearing the wrath of God. And people who say, oh, God can just wink turn a blind eye, forget about sins, and not punish sins, they have no idea, I think. They have no idea of the infinite holiness of God 
which can never tolerate sin and forget it, but requires that sin be punished. They have no idea of the infinite wrath of God against sin because it mars his creation and dishonors his character and robs him of glory. They have no idea of the infinite justice of God that must be executed fully throughout every bit of his creation, justice that can only be satisfied when sins are punished. We saw that from the time of the very first murder in the Bible when Cain killed his brother Abel, and God said to him, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God in his holiness looked on the evil that was done and knew it required a punishment. People who deny the idea of propitiation, I think, have no idea of the infinite wisdom of God, wisdom that devised an amazing plan by which sin could be punished and yet sinners forgiven. And they have no idea of the infinite and pure and holy jealousy of God that will never cease to seek his own honor and glory from all creation, including glorifying his holiness and his justice. If God didn't punish sin, God didn't pour out wrath on his son. He could not be truly righteous and forgive sins. You know, I think that the sense of a need for justice is right there in all of our hearts, and it comes out, it comes out whenever we see something that's really not fair. Now imagine for a minute, imagine for a minute you have a son who's playing a high school football game, and it's a championship game, and you're in the bleachers, you're watching the game, and the other side begins to cheat. They're grabbing face masks and tackling, and the, ref, or the, um, the officials do nothing. They're offsides, and they're sacking your quarterback, and the officials don't call it. They're holding and even tackling your receivers so they can't get downfield. They're offsides, they're sacking the quarterback, and the officials don't do anything. Finally, finally, your key receiver is in the end zone. He's just about to catch a pass, and the defender pushes him out of the way. Blatant pass interference, and the officials don't call it. And you're in the stands, and you're, cheer you're yelling, and you're saying, that's not, that's not fair. Of course that's what you're saying. It's not fair. And of course, if you've been the victim of a crime or someone has just been dishonest and defrauded you in business, you have that sense of justice. You know what it is, the sense that something has to be made right. There's been a wrong done. Now, God is not just a football official. He's watching the whole world, and there are millions upon millions of cases where people are hurting other people and destroying lives and mocking God and slandering him and robbing him of honor. God can't just look the other way. He's not a corrupt football official. He's a just and holy and pure God who says the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Colossians 3.25. And so on the cross, God the Father was pouring out his wrath against our sins on his eternal divine Son instead of on you. And it went on hour after hour, wave after wave of God's wrath poured over Jesus. Would it ever end? He didn't know how long it would go on, at least in his human nature. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is this going on so long? And then suddenly he senses that the wrath of God directed against him has come to an end. 
it's over. He has endured all the wrath of God that was due to our sins, and he cries out with a tremendous shout of victory, it is finished. And the Bible says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He had taken all the wrath of God that we deserved. And so, whenever you see a cross on a building, or whenever you wear a cross, maybe you will shudder just a little bit and remember what happened there. And maybe you will say, the wrath of God that I deserve the wrath of God that would send me to hell forever was poured out on Jesus on that cross. It's one reason why I think it's important we insist on the full deity of Christ. Unless Jesus was truly man, he couldn't have represented us. But unless he was truly God, I don't think he could ever have borne that wrath of an infinitely holy and infinitely powerful and just God against all our sins. He's God and he's man. And I think that's why also the Trinity is important, because you have to have one person who is God representing the just requirements of the Trinity that sin be punished, and another person who is also God taking the force of that punishment on himself without Father and Son both being God and being distinct persons, we do not have salvation. Now, what's the point of this for today for us? I want to make a couple of observations. First, number three, our Christian faith is grounded in objective, real, historical events. The Bible tells us that these things happened, and this is a reminder that the Christian faith is not just some ideas based on somebody's imagination about what God is like. The Christian faith is not just one human philosophy that you can choose among many. The Christian faith is not just some merely human ideas of what religious people should think, but rather our Christian faith is based on this substitutionary death of Christ which has an objective reality outside of ourselves. And so theologians say that the atonement of Christ, his death for us, the atonement of Christ is, first of all, objective. It is something that occurred between the Son and the Father outside of our own personal consciousness or subjective awareness. The Christian faith is not just saying, I hope something is true. You know, we lived in the Chicago area, Margaret and I, for 20 years, and uh, we had a lot of friends who believed the Cubs were going to win the World Series. I just have faith the Cubs are going to win. I hope the Cubs are going to win. Now, let me tell you, that is not faith that's based on objective historical events. <laughs> but the Christian faith is something far different than that. It's based on objective reality outside of ourselves. Whether people believe it or not, some do, some don't, but whether they believe it or not, something momentous happened at the cross, something momentous in the whole history of the universe when Christ was crucified. God the Son actually offered himself as a payment for our sins to God the Father, and God the Father in heaven accepted that payment and said he was satisfied, and God the Son cried out, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit, and he died. The book of Hebrews gives us another picture of what was happening. It says Christ 
has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And it goes on and says it just happened once. It says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest offers, enters the holy places year after year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's finished. It's done. It's completed. How do we know this? How do we know that that was going on in the invisible spiritual realm? Well, I, I agree. We only know it from the Bible. But think about it a minute. How could you ever know what was happening in the in invisible spiritual realm of God's temple in heaven? How could you ever know what was happening in the invisible spiritual interaction between God the Father and God the Son unless God himself told you in his word? That's why the Bible's so important. It, it tells us of eternal realities that we cannot know any other way that the reporter for the Jerusalem Daily News could never know on her own. Application, point number four. Are you trusting in Christ today? Now, when I ask this, I'm not asking, do you believe certain facts about Jesus? It's not like saying, do you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? That's just believing facts. It's not like saying, do you believe that Winston Churchill was the prime minister of England and led them through World War II? That's just fact. It's not even like saying, do you believe that Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt? That's just, again, believing historical facts. But this is different. This is a personal interaction between you and Jesus. He's not only a man who died and rose again, he's also God who is everywhere present. And again and again, when the Bible talks about coming to trust in Jesus for salvation, it puts it in terms of a personal interaction. And there are all sorts of different word pictures, but they all deal with you and Jesus, you individually, you personally and Jesus, and personal interaction. Here's one. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, he's inviting you. He's saying... Come to me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. It's a picture of being burdened down by something that you just can't manage, namely your sin, your efforts at trying to make yourself right with God. You wear yourself out, you're burdened, you're heavy laden, and Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest, but that's a personal interaction between you and him. John 3.16, that famous verse, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But that Greek phrase translated believes in, pistuo ace plus the accusative, that's a very unusual, very uncommon expression in the Greek world. It isn't just believing facts. It's, we could almost translate it, believing into someone, believing into someone else, almost like going out of yourself and resting in another person, whoever believes in him. Other verses in the New Testament speak this way in terms of a personal trust or interaction between you and Jesus. 
Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Same construction. Hebrews 7, 25, those who draw near to God through him. That's coming close to someone, drawing near. Romans 10, 13 to 14, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a personal interaction, calling on him. Or John 1, 12, to all who received him, he gave power to become the children of God. Receiving, it's a picture of opening the door of your house and welcoming a guest into your house. But the house is your whole life, and the guest is God. And he's coming to be there as Lord and God. Receive him. You receive Jesus. So all of those personal interaction verses are inviting you to come to him and trust in him. But if I'm going to be faithful and honest to the whole Bible, I have to say there's something else here too. And right close to John 3.16 is another verse. It's up there on the, on the uh, slide. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Those who do not believe in Christ, says the Bible, will themselves experience the wrath of God. Romans 2.5 says this, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The same wrath of God that was poured out on Christ, if you do not trust in him, will be poured out on you forever. Now, you might have been coming to Scottsdale Bible Church for years, or other churches for years, but you know, you know some, in your heart, you know that just coming to church doesn't meet the deepest need of your heart. It doesn't bring you into a personal knowledge, a personal relationship of God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't give you a sense of forgiveness of sins. And so the question is, have you come to trust in Christ personally? You, Jim, or Julie, or Sally, or Bob, or Steve, or Emily, or whoever you are here, have you come to trust in him personally? Do you hear him saying, Come to me. When I read those verses, if you are sensing an internal spiritual tugging at your heart, kind of a turmoil inside, I think Jesus is calling you to himself. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so there's a drawing of people spiritually to trust in Christ. And if he's drawing you to, your, to himself, it's time to respond. You don't know how long God will continue to be patient with you. You don't know how long he'll continue to give you that hunger for him in his heart, in your heart. And if you're feeling that today as I read these verses, do not, do not delay another day. Don't put him off a moment longer. Come to him, trust in him. But you might be thinking, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be in, I know I've done wrong. I know there's sin in my life. I can't come to him. And here I want to say the reason you need to hear that message on salvation this morning is 
just that. It's sin. Sin is disobedience, any disobedience to the moral law of God. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says the thing you need to get rid of if you're ever going to have fellowship with God is your sin, but you can never, ever solve the problem by trying to make yourself better. If you think, I'm going to go home, next week I'll come back, I'll be good enough, you're never going to make it. It's never going to work for your whole life. You have to simply in your heart turn from that sin and ask Jesus for forgiveness, which is a totally free gift. He says, come to me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In your heart, then all you have to do is say, yes, Lord Jesus, I come to you. I give you my life. I commit my life to you. I receive you. I welcome you into my heart. I welcome you into my life, but oh, Jesus, this burden of my guilt, this burden of my sin, I feel it. It's intolerable. Take it, please. Take it, Jesus. Please forgive my sins. I turn from them. I renounce them. I come to you for complete, totally free forgiveness from them. I cannot make myself right. I trust in you. Can you do that in your heart? Maybe some of you, as I'm speaking, are doing that this very moment. You know, it's really helpful if you express that in a prayer. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray kind of an example prayer right now. And if in your heart you're saying, that's what I want to do. I'm, I'm not sure if I've ever trusted in, in Jesus personally. If that's what you want to do, I'm asking you silently that you just pray right along with me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your invitation that you call us, saying, come to me and I will give you rest. Oh, Lord, how I need you. Lord, I need to get rid of this burden of sin that's keeping me from God. Lord, forgive my sin. I turn from it. I renounce it, Lord. I, I want you above all things. I come to you. Oh, Lord, I take your invitation. I, I come to you and I give my life to you and I, and I just take that free gift of forgiveness and thank you for it. Oh, cleanse me, cleanse me. Welcome me, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your promise. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Lord, I'm coming to you now and I believe that you will not cast me out, but you will receive me forever. Oh, Lord, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. Amen. I just want to say two things by way of final application. If you've been coming to Scottsdale Bible Church for a long time, and like me, it was many, many, many years ago when you first put your personal faith in Christ, and there's an application for us, too. And that is that the message of the cross should humble us, every one of us, because it's a reminder to us that we can never make ourselves right with God, that Christ had to die to pay the penalty. We should never walk out of this door saying, oh, God, I'm good enough to be saved. I'm not. Every one of us in thinking about the cross should remember, Lord, I need you. I need your forgiveness every day of my life or I'd never be in your presence. So it should humble us, all of us, the message of the cross. But second, 
if you today, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time when it was really genuine and real in your heart, if you prayed that prayer to put your trust in Christ, then let me ask you something. Um, Troy's going to come forward. We're going to have a, a brief offering that the elders take every once in a while to meet the needs of the poor and needy in the community, and then we'll dismiss. But when we dismiss, I wonder if, if you trusted in Christ for the first time, could you come down here to the front? And if you're here and you're a staff member, an elder, a ministry leader in the church, could you come down here to the front just for a minute or two and just hang out in case somebody wants to come and talk with you. And, and if you've trusted in Christ for the first time, I, if you come down here and just seek out somebody to talk with, they'll say a quick prayer with you. They'll maybe get your name and phone number and email so you can get connected with some people in the church and start to learn more about how to grow in the Christian life. Coming forward like that does not save you. Trusting in Jesus in your heart is what saves you. But, but let me tell you, coming down and talking to somebody, it helps a lot. It just solidifies it. And, uh, and I'd, I'd love it if you could do that. Okay, Troy, thank you.